like mind melded the thoughts into your brains. I didn't have to say anything. It's incredible. Hi, my name's Cole. I'm the uh, youth pastor here. I get to preach this morning, <clears throat> which means we don't have any uh, youth classes. So if you are 7th through 12th grade, you know we have been journeying through, <clears throat> excuse me, we have been journeying through the Exodus as well. Um, and we've reached the point of Exodus chapter 12. Um, Tim discussed last week the 10 plagues of the Exodus, and he kind of zoomed out, which is necessary to do. He zoomed out and took a bird's eye view of the plagues. And this morning, we're actually going to slow down a bit, and we're going to zoom into the text, and we're going to be looking at the 10th plague, just the 10th plague. Um, why are we doing this? Why, like, focus in on what is probably the worst of the plagues? Um, well, it's because the Bible does this. It does this. Chapter 11 is the basic story of the firstborn, where the destroyer comes and kills the firstborn son of Pharaoh, the laborers and the cattle. However, if the Israelites performed a specific kind of ritual that was given to them, ending in putting the blood over a, a specific, or a, a, the blood of a specific animal over the doorframe of their house, God would pass over the destroyer would pass over the house and go find people who did not do this. And uh, the Israelite people would be spared from the violence. But here's the weird thing. Chapter 12 comes along, and it actually doesn't move that narrative along. Weirdly, it tells that story in chapter 11, and then in chapter 12, it tells the story again, and institutes this memory as a holiday with rituals and things that you're supposed to do. And they call it the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And in that festival, you have the Passover meal. We might know the Passover meal uh, as Jesus and the Last Supper. We kind of know, at least from our perspective, a little bit about this. So yeah, so the text is like, hey readers, uh, you need to pay attention to this story. We're going to tell it to you once, and then we're going to tell it to you again. This time with some rituals and things to remember. So therefore, we this morning are actually going to pay attention to this. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to slow down. We're going to read it. We're going to look at it and try to figure out uh, what's going on here. And we're going to talk about this violent and wildly awful night in Egypt. Who's with me? <laughs> All right. This is going to be great. Also, something you need to know. I'm aware that I sweat at 73 degrees. <laughs> and so... It's just going to happen, and if someone wants to bring me a towel, I'm really working up here. That'd be great. All right. Okay, so everybody, like, loves the universal mission of God. Everyone loves it. Um, everyone loves to talk about the universal action of God, reconciling the world to God's self. And we love to float above the world and talk about big, loft, big lofty, and soft things, right? But it, it's... It's when you drill down on something, when you talk about the particular actions of God, or maybe the particular non-actions of God, it's when it gets, that's when it gets a little tough. When you start talking about ground-level choices by God in Scripture, things get a little weird. And anytime you're talking to students and they read something that God does or does not do, uh, it gets a little, they have some questions, and then you find yourself going, um... Let me get back to you on that one. So, so, a few questions, right? Why does God do this in Scripture and not that, right? Why does God do that absolutely horrific thing in the Bible or bless it? 
why does God tell people to slaughter that group of people, okay? Why does God not help these, these vulnerable people instead of helping over here? Exodus 12 uh, starts with instructions, as I said, on the ceremonial practices, but eventually it moves to this story, which is a, it's tough to hear. Verse 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So, what are we supposed to think about? Yes, Tyler, thank you. What a guy. I don't want that. What is this? An oven mitt. An oven mitt. Look at this. This is outrageous. This is, tur- this is turned into a circus. What's happening? So what are we supposed to think about this? What are we supposed to think about God doing this kind of thing in Scripture? And we're going to try to tackle this this morning, or I'm going to try to, and we're, we're going to do our best we can here. What are we supposed to think when God commits horrific acts of violence? And, and here's what I just want to acknowledge. Here's what I hope happens inside of you as we read it. I hope you feel some dissonance as I even say God commits horrific acts of violence. I hope that there's an uncomfortable tinge in your stomach. And if this story doesn't do that for you, I can probably point you to something in the Old Testament that will make you put the Bible down and say, what in the world am I reading? Now, I am no biblical scholar, so I don't have like a lot of like, answers necessarily for this. But so I went to some few, a few biblical scholars to get some help. And let me tell you, if you're looking for satisfaction or certainty, I'd encourage you to just call it a Sunday and maybe we'll see you next week. And it's like, let's just go from there, yeah. Um, because from here on out, we're going to be making some trade-offs and we're gonna be trafficking in some, tr- some choppy waters. And I just hope that you just stick with me as we kind of like wrestle through this the way everyone throughout time has been wrestling through this. Okay. Here's some few ways to look at the violence in scripture. These are very simple and like not, they're just like, just some handlebars for us. View number one would be like the literalist view. Um, It's what the Bible said, what the Bible says is what the Bible says. So this view would say God does these things, but it was for like a greater purpose. Um, This is almost a kind of utilitarian view where the victim's death is like a sacrifice. And their sacrifice is a small price to pay for the greater good of God's mission, right? Here's the problem for me. And and we we should probably have problems with all of these. But the problem for me is I'm a Christian. Therefore, I believe that Jesus is the full revelation of God. And I, I cannot honestly get myself to believe that this is the same God as Jesus. Just there's some strong like issues there for me. I can't do it. If you are somebody who's like, yeah, okay. Cool, all right, Uh, we can talk about it. View number two is the naturalist view. Uh, These are scholars who say something happened, and Tim kind of mentioned this a little bit um, a few Sundays ago or last Sunday. There are some credible theories that the oldest males died in a war around the time, and it was a trauma to Egypt, and this Passover myth kind of rose up around it, and it's like a mythic retelling of a very rational and plausible event that happened, probably to solidify like national identity as Israel and maybe that God is on their side. Okay, so like the problem for me is actually a a small thing, okay? Uh, I I just don't feel the need to explain the text this way. 
Um, for me, I am comfortable with a God who does particular things in the world, including miracles. This doesn't bother me that much. Um, now, what God does, I have some questions, but that God does things in the world is not an issue for me. So that's me. That's where I sit. And finally, view number three, well, not finally, but view number three is the metaphor view. This is a view that says, yeah, don't worry, it didn't happen. None of this happened. It's all a metaphor to get at a larger truth about God. Probably, again, to solidify national identity and to say God is on the side of the oppressed. Again, here, a, diff, a problem here for me, and this is a little nuanced, so follow me. I feel that this view can sometimes be a little detached and academic. Um, it doesn't quite jive with the world we live in. I'm not saying that God slaughtered the firstborn males and we should just accept it. I'm saying I'm sympathetic to the fact that we live in a wildly violent and complex world. And God killing the firstborn males of Egypt after Egypt just killed the firstborn males of the Israelites might feel to the victims like a kind of solidarity. And I don't just want to gut that away. I want to say I understand on some level where that could come from. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, cool. Lastly, the witness view. Um, this is probably the one where I, I find the most, like, solidarity with. Um, this one says, the dissonance you feel when you read the text is actually really important. And the view is kind of built out of that. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the full revelation of God. And the cross is the ethic and cruciform character of God. Therefore, when you see the text writing God as doing something horrific or violent, we actually kind of need to lean even closer and maybe rethink the way we're thinking about the text, rethink the way we're reading the text, and potentially uh, you, you, have, you have permission to theorize alternative theories to kind of reconnect this text to make it work with Jesus as the center of our thinking, the start of our thinking, okay? So, whew, everybody with me? Okay, cool, good. Uh, I actually kind of like this view a lot. Um, however, I can see this being a problem uh, for some people, that when God breathes God's word to the writers of the text, this non-course of God allows for people to participate in the writing and formation of the text. That's what this view kind of says. Therefore, it's possible at times the writers trapped in their time and culture and their imagination of God as a warrior, right? They simply wrote God doing things. They ascribed to God doing things and blessing things that God did not do or did not bless. And God does not correct it, does not come in and be like, that's not true, due to God's desire to be faithful to us and pull us non-coercively into the future to an ethic of cruciformity and sacrificial love. That's the view. I like this view. Let me explain why. Let's say I went downtown, and like, my wife goes downtown a lot to get her hair cut. Let's say she, we both, Valerie and I, for random reasons, we go downtown. Valerie's getting her hair cut, and um, I was singing karaoke, which also often happens downtown. <laughs> And randomly, I get done, and I'm walking down the street, and I see Valerie walking down the street, and we don't know each other is supposed to be there, and I see Valerie walk up to a small child and kick this small child in the face. 
you would think to your, I would go like, wait a second, that is my wife, um, but like, I know my wife, and there's some, kind of, there's some kind of character or some kind of fidelity that's implanted in me that says, okay, I, I'm now allowed to use abductive reasoning to say, there must be some information that I'm not getting here. Does this make sense? My, my wife did something horrible, but there must be something that I'm completely missing. There must be some kind of thing that I don't understand. Maybe this is knowing my wife, Maybe there's a camera pointed on me right now, and this is a trick, and this kid is in on it. It's possible that's what's happening, right? And so, like, this is the kind of thing that, like, this is why I like this view. We start with the fidelity of the cross, and then we look at the Old Testament, and we say, we are allowed, we're given permission to use our imaginations to reconnect and figure out, okay, well, let's, let's think through this, what's happening. Most scholars cherry-pick anyways, they cherry-pick from different views to make their interpretations for Exodus 12 and the Passover. But to get at the approach we're getting at this morning, and this is, I'm building all of this to like this thing, because we're going to need this. I want to introduce you to a common principle, a hermeneutic, that I respond, well, a, a principle, that I respond to strongly, and something that I think is going to be helpful for us. It's called the principle of withdrawal. Okay? Follow me. Everybody with me? All right. I know this is a really heady, but we're doing this. Jürgen Moltmann and Greg Boyd are two people who kind of introduced this to me. Other people have used this, and they, use it, they call it different things. And Brueggemann uses it as well, but Brueggemann applies it um, a little more haphazardly. He's not as um, like, consistent with it. Um, throughout Scripture, God does not commit the violence. The text says it, but like God's not the one doing it. But there is a wisdom at the heart of Scripture called you reap what you sow. In other words, as Psalm 1 points us to, evil leads to destruction and good leads to life. Therefore, at times, it seems that God has a tipping point with people where God will bend and bend and bend and explain and explain and explain until at some point and for some reason, there is a moment that God hands people over to the future they are often trying to avoid, also known as destruction. Tim talked about this when he was discussing God hardening Pharaoh's heart. God doesn't force Pharaoh to die in the Red Sea, but rather handed him over to the future that Pharaoh was just barreling towards, even if he couldn't see it or not. And ironically, we also find this happening with Judas at the Last Supper, right? Judas has this experience where uh, he is handed over to the future he's trying to avoid, he's barreling towards. Which, by the way, the Last Supper, Passover, that's going to be important later. So, the withdrawal principle is that God brings judgment to injustice by removing God's presence and allowing for the waters of chaos to rush in and destroy. And I hope you can see the Red Sea imagery here. With all this in mind, let's check out verse, uh, ch or chapter 3, verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. The destroyer. What, what is this, right? Like, what, what's happening here? It seems as though God is taking the blame for committing the act, but 
But the text has this strange personified force called the destroyer that goes in and does the violence. And this, I hope, points us back to the scenario that Moltmann's trying to paint for us. Pharaoh, Pharaoh has brought chaos to the community by killing the Hebrew firstborns at the beginning of Exodus. And now God is continuing to, to protect God's people, but removing that protection for Pharaoh and allowing the chaos to come for him. And I will submit to you, God is still restraining it a bit, considering God only allows the destroyer to kill the firstborn male. It's almost like an eye for an eye thing. But we have to ask this question. Like, okay, God didn't do the actual act. Let's, but so why would God allow this to happen? What kind of God would allow this to happen? Is there, in other words, is there any other way to get Pharaoh to relent? Tim and I were talking about this question, and he said this. He said, Freud thought that the higher one climbs the pyramid, the more repression occurs the more blind we are to our own psychological symptoms, especially those who are educated. So they are much more, we are much more wedded to a system that God is trying to undermine in the Exodus story at the farther up the pyramid you go. We have these like little shortcuts and these heuristics to interpret day-to-day -day events that might challenge the system. And it sometimes takes, especially the higher up you go, the more disruption, the, a, bigger, more, a bigger disruption to you to help you see the future that you're headed towards. Does this make sense? In other words, Pharaoh does what most hierarchies of oppression do. And Pharaoh's sitting at the top of this thing. He participates, and the scripture tells us this, he participates in a willful amnesia about the past, and he deceives himself and others to protect, to protect the system of exploitation and violence that he sits upon. And so if it is true that Pharaoh brought chaos to the community by killing the firstborn males of the Hebrew people, the destroyer breaking in and killing the firstborn of, of, the, of the Egyptians was the truth of Pharaoh's life breaking through his amnesia and self-deception and introducing him to what he was doing to the world. And specifically, to God's people. And yes, God let that happen. Freud, who was Jewish, did most of his work before Hitler came to power. But he would, he would have understood how all these middlemen in Germany would perpetuate these horrible atrocities and never say a thing. You, you simply need to forget who you are and who the victims are, right? Forget who you are and forget who the victims are and self-deceive yourself enough to justify the violence for the sake of the system you benefit from. A little closer to home, Freud was not around for the invasion of Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction or our CIA committing illegal war crimes by torturing Middle Eastern people for information at black sites, but he would totally understand how nobody would say a thing if it wasn't for one or two whistleblowers who, by the way, everyone wanted to throw in jail, nobody would have ever known this was happening. Also, Freud was not around for Chernobyl, but he would have understood, by the way, Chernobyl, one of the most gruesome and devastating disasters to ever happen, which, this is crazy, I read this, uh, to the question, how long before we're able to live in Chernobyl, um, 
most people on average say 20,000 years. Like, that's great. I'm going <laughs> to do this. So Freud would have understood, like, some things about what, how this, how did this happen? Did nobody, like, said, like, hey, heads up, this is, this is a problem. And by the way, according to historians, uh, the reason the Soviet Union actually fell is not because America was so awesome, but because this, their own citizens began to doubt the reality that the government was trying to paint. And the lie stopped working. And there was a TV show called Chernobyl who actually depicts this uh, and this show, these, these events. And the main thesis of the show actually came from a white paper by a Russian woman who was trying to understand how something like this could happen. How could so many people let something so horrific happen? And why didn't anybody be like, hey, heads up, this is a problem? Who was responsible? So let's take a look at this dramatic retelling of this clip. Um, in this scene, you have Dr. Valery Legasov, who was a scientist in the USSR, who was assigned the responsibility of investigating the Chernobyl disaster. And in this scene, he's presenting his findings to the government, and it's like a dramatic retelling, so we can kind of understand and remember what happened with, what was going on with Chernobyl. But what's interesting is he's saying all this um, while the government is trying to blame one of the workers, trying to scapegoat one of the workers at the power plant. And uh, yeah, let's just watch this for a second. Endlessly accelerating the reaction. 
Yes. Okay. So, what happens next is a little bit of a turn uh, in, during his deposition. Uh, Dr. Legasov makes an unexpected claim that ends up costing him his life, actually. He pulls back the curtain on how Chernobyl happened and who was to blame. Or maybe a better way to say this would be, he shows how everyone's, everyone's self-deception, everyone's self-deception in a system had an inevitable destructive conclusion. Let's take a look at this. and self-deception to protect a system of violence and coercion ushers in the future we're trying to avoid. It ushers in destruction. And at some point, God will give us over to what the future that we want. The farther up the pyramid we go, the more amnesia and self-deception is required. Thus, the more catastrophic the event is required to wake us up from our slumber. And Pharaoh was at the top of the pyramid of power and control, and his oldest child was found dead, and Pharaoh relents. The Israelites may leave. So this morning, our sermon is not a happy story. Exodus 12 is not exactly a fun text. Uh, this story happened, but this story is still happening. Exodus 12 is a warning. It's a warning. Do we live in a society that is doubling down on amnesia of its own past? Do we live in a culture that is massively profiting off of its own lies? And do we live in a country that sacrifices our vulnerable to protect the top of the pyramid? Rabbi Lawrence Kushner tells this story. 
of a time when he was the head rabbi at a synagogue in Massachusetts. And every year, the preschool would come into the sanctuary and Rabbi Kushner would, would show the little preschoolers around the sanctuary, telling them what the different elements of the sanctuary meant. And the time had come for the annual teaching time and the preschool teacher brought her little class of preschoolers into the sanctuary while Rabbi Kushner explained the space they were in. And this particular time, he ended on the curtain that covered the Torah. It was a large box that had a red curtain that covered the Torah scrolls inside. So you couldn't see what was inside the box from the outside. And he asked the preschoolers, he said, what do you think is behind the curtain? He says, one little boy, he says, a simple boy, said, an elephant. <laughs> uh, another boy, he says, a future nihilist, raised his hand and was like, nothing's behind the curtain. <laughs> and finally, a little girl raised her hand and said, a mirror. And he said he had to sit back and think about this. He's like, yeah, yes, that's right. Because the word of God is, is like a mirror. We are every part of the story. And we are to find ourselves and identify ourselves or parts of ourselves with every part of the text. Even, and probably most, most importantly, the ugliest parts, the parts we don't want to look at. And if Rabbi Kushner is right, and I think he is, and as we approach communion, we must come to the Eucharist meal at Passover, right? Passover, the same, the same holiday on Exodus 12, with Passover, with a warning that we are not just the people of God in this story, right? But mysteriously and simultaneously, we are also Pharaoh. Each and every one of us have both stories in us all the time. We carry these characters with us everywhere we go. And the tension that is found in Exodus 12, the reason why the Bible is like, here's the story, here's the story again, <laughs> is because we need to pay attention to this. This must be important for us as we head forward in the book of Exodus. And if you were Jewish reading this, here's the weird thing. If you were Jewish reading this, you would, you would think of Passover as a joyous time. So when you read Exodus 12, it's a little jarring, I would imagine, to read the narrative jump back and forth between here's some festival instructions and here's scenes of the destroyer killing children. <laughs> and it's very weird. But this dissonance, this dissonance is exactly what we are to remember. This bizarre life we live together is interlaced with tragedy and with hope. With despair and courage, with disappointment and love, with oppression and liberation. God is at work in Passover, but the future is not quite here, is it? Exodus 12, like us, is caught in between plagues and promised land. And we're crying out to God, asking God to save us from Pharaoh and simultaneously, we are self-deceiving ourselves as we decimate the planet and each other. And when you look throughout Scripture, it seems like the writers throughout the ages know about this weird interlacing of opposites at Passover. And I think this is fascinating. Passover, when it's mentioned throughout Scripture, is always mentioned as a party in and around a giant failure, a violent war, or an unseen betrayal. Right? A celebration at the end of, the war in, of a war in Joshua. 
King Josiah throws a nationwide rager after he realizes that the people of God have been committing hundreds of years of systemic and economic injustice. So his change of heart comes with a party that's so wild that it includes immigrants and slaves who are not ritually clean. And he has the priests just sacrifice animals to be like, we're doing this, God, I hope you're okay with this. We're just gonna have this great party. And how about, how about a small intimate meal with friends where they laugh over food and wine while simultaneously one friend betrays a teacher for 30 pieces of silver? Passover is a massive party to celebrate a transition to a new way of being together that contains the darkest parts of our life and the greatest hopes for our future simultaneously in the same space at the same time. And may we both, may we carry both to the table this morning as we share. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to come to the table with every part of our life at the front of our minds. I pray that with our eyes open to the horrors we participate in and the hope we long for, may we remember the whole story of Passover and the celebration of a new way of being that is here and not yet. A way of being together where the horror is amongst us, but it no longer has the power to stop the party. God, may you expand our hearts. May you give us new imaginations to be able to hold the truth of our lives and each other together. May we be a part of the reconciliation of all things to Christ. Amen. And um, the way that we do this is the ushers will release us and we'll come forward and you'll be given a little container that's, you know, safe for us to use um, with a little wafer and the, the juice in it. And um, we'll receive that um, together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And he passed it out to his guys. And then in the same way, after supper, he took a cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, whenever you get together, remember my body, remember my blood. Receive it in, into me or into you, and remember that you live my life out into the world. And this is why, this is why we still do this. Um, and, and it has, as Cole said, this continuity clear back to the Passover feast that we just read about this morning. And so um, I invite everybody to take part in this today. Um, but before we do, let's pray a blessing. Lord, we ask your um, blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?